Well, good morning, church family. Anybody up for a little, whatever this is? Badminton. So this, this is going to be the final gift of the summer for some lucky young person out there at the end of our service. So don't be distracted by that. I know it's kind of bright. <clears throat> My name is Perry. I'm glad you're here this morning. And uh, so we've been going through the Ten Commandments through a, as part of a subsection of a, the larger law in the Old Testament, Exodus through Deuteronomy. And as a follow-up of our last weeks on the Ten Commandments, I wanted to take the next few weeks, we are going to take the next few weeks, to cover some specific topics related to the broader law of Moses, okay? And all these topics are really relevant to us today, and our hope is that we can become more confident in the Bible's message in the midst of a lot of cultural confusion, all right? Perhaps you've heard critics claim that the Bible condones human slavery. You may have also heard that there is nothing in the Bible that prohibits abortion. These are just two of many topics that we Christians can lack clarity on. As a result, we can become timid and insecure in our proclamation of the truth, and it can undermine our own confidence in the Bible in general. So saints, we cannot let that happen. Proverbs 28.1 says this, the wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. Bold as a lion. Your Bible is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It's like silver, it says, refined in a furnace, not once or twice, but seven times. It's like a fire, it says. It's like a hammer that can shatter solid rock. And it has held up to 2,000 years of intense scrutiny and skepticism and vicious attack. So, before we open it, how about we pray for God to give us his thoughts, his words, his wisdom. Would you pray with me? Dear Father, you say in Psalm 119 that forever, forever your word is settled and fixed in heaven. It's timeless. And so we look to it now for its timeless truth. We pray that you would strengthen our hearts in these days, strengthen our convictions, strengthen our confidence in what we have come to believe. Lord, keep us humble, keep us compassionate, but oh God, make us bold as lions. Make us a people who know our God, who know our Bibles, who know what we believe and why we believe it. We ask you that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, you may be wondering why we paired up these two topics of slavery and abortion, and here's why. 
The common denominator between slavery and abortion is that in both cases, human beings are viewed as mere chattel. That's an old-fashioned word for property. They are subhuman. That is the rationale and justification for treating each of these humans barbarically. Both spring from a naturalistic, materialistic, evolutionary worldview, but they also spring from humanity's fallen, selfish nature and our selfish desire to be served rather than to serve. Both are based on the belief that one person's life is more important than another person's life based on certain physical characteristics. For slaves, it's the physical color of their skin. For aborted children, it's their physical size and physical location. So let's begin by talking about slavery. How many of you here have heard from anyone that the Bible is pro-slavery? A few of you have heard that. I've heard that. That accusation actually has some support at face value. And not just in the Old Testament law. Okay? In the New Testament, we read in Ephesians 6, 5, bond servants obey your earthly masters. Colossians 3.22, bond servants obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. And 1 Peter 2.18, servants be subject to your masters. And there are more verses than these basically say the same thing. Now the word servants and, and bond servants here come from the Greek word doulos. Doulos. It can also be translated slave. And it usually referred to people who had an amazing level of legal and social status in the first century Greco-Roman world. Most of them were not slaves from birth or for their whole life or because of their race. The majority of them were prisoners of war who actually would have been slaughtered had they not been enslaved. Now, when you and I hear the word slave, we typically think of, you know, American history only. We think of African natives who were physically abducted, stripped of all rights, sold, mistreated, enslaved for life because solely because of their race. Now, certainly this was one of the most reprehensible and despicable institutions ever allowed in the history of our country and many countries. I was 16 years old when the TV series Roots first came out, depicting the American slave trade. And it shocked me. Even though it was, it was really tame compared to reality and what, what actually happened, but it opened our nation's eyes to a very shameful era of our history. Now, you might have heard people say that the Bible gives lots of instruction regarding slavery, and, and honestly, it does. It's true. So how can that not be a general endorsement of it? Let me answer that with an analogy. You know, suppose I say to a friend, please, go vote in the next election. Well, does that mean that I 
necessarily believe in democracy, that it's the ideal political system? No, not necessarily. Or what if I encourage a soldier to follow the orders of their commanding officer? Does that reveal my complete perspective on the military or on war in general? No. Similarly, practices like slavery, polygamy, and divorce, they were common in biblical times. And the Bible gives instruction concerning them. But does biblical instruction equal approval? It's an important question. I would say no. It does not. Biblical instruction that allows for certain evil practices in certain contexts isn't necessarily biblical approval. We must interpret them in relation to everything else that the scripture says. Think of when the Pharisees asked Jesus, you know, about divorce. They appealed to the fact that Moses permitted divorce in the law. But Jesus told them it was because of the hardness of their hearts, not because God now approved of divorce. And even though the Bible permitted slavery, the New Testament actually served as a philosophical and theological foundation for the abolition of slavery. And we'll get to that. Most importantly, we need to understand that slavery in the Old Testament specifically was very, very different from the slavery that our country practiced. Never did Israel ever practice the capture and selling of human life like the Philistines or the Phoenicians or later European countries. In Israel, a person in debt did not have the option of selling off their property. And the Bible says it's because ultimately all property belongs to the Lord. So they couldn't sell it. So an Israelite had to sell the only real asset that that they possessed, their labor, their labor. So how was slavery in ancient Israel different from the slavery that you and I are so familiar with? Well, there's a lot of differences. Let's just look at them. Slavery was not based on a person's ethnicity, but on circumstances and economics. Slaves were still considered citizens of Israel who had legal rights and protections. Slavery was not lifelong. They were to be set free after seven years. When set free, the former slave was to be well provided for. Slavery did not include kidnapping people and selling them to others. Married slaves could not be separated. Any master who injured his slave had to immediately free him. The Old Testament commanded the death penalty for kidnapping. And if a master caused his slave's death, the master was subject to capital punishment. So different. Foreign slaves, along with Hebrew households, had a day of rest each week. It's right there in God's law. And all these rules applied to non-Hebrew slaves as well, except for the duration of their slavery. Enemies of Israel were not set free. And I'll discuss the reason why in just a minute. Because of these differences, 
Even though the scriptures use the word slavery, the practice in Israel was more like that of an indentured servant. What is that? Indentured servitude is a form of labor in which a person is contracted to work without salary for a specific number of years. The contract, called an indenture, may be entered voluntarily for purported eventual compensation or debt repayment. Or it may be imposed involuntarily as a judicial punishment. So sometimes a person might become a slave because they had committed a crime. Suppose a person was convicted of theft. And, you know, in Israel, they did not have prisons to punish people. So the thief would have to pay a fine in order to compensate for the victim's loss. Well, if he didn't have the money to do so, he would have to work that debt off as a slave. It's very similar today, you know, to when a court orders the garnishment of a person's wages to pay off a debt. So there's three different categories of slaves in the Old Testament. I think it's important to understand. Let's take a look at them. First, there's an impoverished Israelite. Leviticus 25, 35 to 37. If your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself with you, you shall support him as though he were a stranger and a sojourner, and he shall live with you. Take no interest from him or profit, but fear your God that your brother may live beside you. You shall not lend him your money at interest, nor give him your food for profit. So in Israel, it was a cultural obligation to support someone in need among your neighbors. It's just what they did. You'd let them actually live with you, and you couldn't charge them interest on their debt. Now, this doesn't assume that the person can live with you forever. If their need persists, then they can sell themselves to you as an indentured servant on a contractual basis. Talks about that if we read on. If your brother becomes poor beside you and sells himself to you, you shall not make him serve as a slave. He shall be with you as a hired worker and as a sojourner. He shall serve with you until the year of Jubilee. Then he shall go out from you, he and his children with him, and go back to his own clan and return to the possession of his father's. For they are my servants, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. They shall not be sold as slaves. You shall not rule over him ruthlessly, but shall fear your God. So this person's getting a paycheck. It's not somebody who has relinquished his life to serve you. And you let him serve you until that year of jubilee. And it was, it was like clockwork, every seven years. So if If somebody did this, you know, one year before the year of Jubilee, he could only serve you for one year. You let him serve you until the Jubilee, at which point all debts, all debts are canceled. Wouldn't that be great? (laughs) That's when everyone goes back to their ancestral homes and families and fields debt-free. Second case is the alien from another country, Leviticus 25, 44. As for your male and female slaves whom you may have, you may buy male and female slaves from among the nations that are around you. So, first of all, who do we know that these people are not? We know they are not simply foreigners or sojourners because they were to be treated with dignity, welcomed into your home and taken care of. These are people from among 
the nations. It's the word goi, G-O-I. And to this day, that word is used for the Gentiles, or, or go, goyim is the plural. In Exodus and Leviticus, this term is only used three times prior to this passage. And in each case, it's referring to Israel's enemies, their enemies. Here's the three cases, Exodus 34, 24. For I will cast out nations before you and enlarge your borders. Leviticus 18, 24. Do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things, for by all these the nations I am driving out before you have become unclean. It's goyim. Leviticus 18, 28. The land will vomit you out when you make it unclean as it vomited out the nation that was before you. You see, these are the true slaves. The only people who were not released during the year of Jubilee. These are basically prisoners of war. Prisoners of war. Now, historically, most prisoners of war were humiliated and tortured and killed. But in Israel, they were often given the tasks of like like hauling wood or, or water. And they were provided for. Okay? Now, this is really important because this was a greater standard of love and care than in any other culture on the planet. Period. If the Israelites just released them, you know, they would most likely just go right back to their posture of being an enemy of Israel. They'd go back to their people and attack again, you know? So. Instead, the Israelites were to take responsibility for these people. All right, let's talk about the one final case. What if you were an Israelite and you became needy and you needed to sell yourself to a foreigner for their help? We continue in Leviticus 25. If a stranger or sojourner with you becomes rich and your brother beside him becomes poor and sells himself to the stranger or sojourner with you, or to a member of the stranger's clan, then after he is sold, he may be redeemed. One of his brothers may redeem him, or his uncle or his cousin may redeem him, or a close relative from his clan may redeem him. Or, if he grows rich, he may redeem himself. He shall calculate with his buyer from the year when he was sold, sold himself to him until the year of Jubilee. So again, depending on the timing of when you did this, you would calculate how many years till Jubilee, and, and that would affect how much he had to be redeemed for price-wise. But you see, God never intended for his people to become permanent slaves, And in verse 49, it's talking about a kinsman redeemer. You might have heard of that term from, uh, you know, Boaz in the book of Esther. Or not uh, Esther, um, the other one. (laughs) So, um, kinsman redeemer, somebody from your own family who pays the price to acquire your freedom and to release you from your debt. So God is saying here that any non-Israelite masters living in the land still had to submit to the law of the land. And the law of the land said that as far as Israelites are concerned, the year of Jubilee trumps everything else. Everything else, including everybody else's laws and customs. Okay. 
So here's how I believe we 21st century believers should think about this. Israel, the nation of Israel, had been enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. Think about how many generations that would be. 400 years where they suffered greatly. They were mistreated. They were without any rights as human beings. That was their understanding of slavery, right? So as they began their new nation as liberated slaves, God gave them these laws and restrictions so that they wouldn't treat others the way the Egyptians had treated them. God wants people to be free. But you know what? We live in such a fallen world, such a fallen world that sometimes slavery or rather indentured servitude is actually the best option. How so? Well, it's better than starvation. It's better than homelessness. It's better than crime or prostitution. It's better than being locked up in a prison. So, you know, unfortunately, slavery is is not a thing of the past. Per capita in 2021, here's some of the worst offenders, North Korea, Eritrea, Mauritania, Saudi Arabia, some of the worst offenders of slavery. Even Africa, I think, has 700,000 slaves today. And that's per capita, but there are also millions and millions of slaves in India, China, and Pakistan. According to the global estimates of modern slavery from 2022, in our modern enlightened world, 50 million people still live in slavery, in forced labor, forced marriage, and roughly a quarter of them are children. It's just tragic. Slavery was not invented by white people didn't start in 1619 when the first slaves came to Jamestown or in 1492 when Columbus discovered the New World. Slavery existed in Africa, Asia, and the Middle East long, long before that. As much as one-third of the population of the ancient world was enslaved. One-third. But, really for the first time in human history, In 1833, Britain became the first country in the world to pass a slavery abolition act. They were followed by France, who in 1848 abolished slavery in all of its colonies. Then, of course, came the 13th Amendment to the United States Constitution in 1865. Now, sadly, it is true that Southern plantation owners used the Bible to justify their cruel slavery. But they used it inappropriately. They didn't interpret it properly according to the rules. They didn't apply the grammatical historical method of Bible interpretation. And that might be even new to you, but it's a thing. And it's real and it's it's incredibly important. Why? Because you can make the Bible say almost anything you want it to say. And people do. As a result, 
how many atrocities in history have been committed in the name of God and of the Bible and Christianity? Lots. But that doesn't mean that the Bible is evil or that it can't be trusted. It just means that we have to interpret it according to its well-established rules. It was Christians who used that very same Bible to denounce the practice of slavery. Their method of interpreting it happened to be hermeneutically or, or interpretively correct. In the New Testament, Paul instructs a Christian slave owner named Philemon to receive his slave who had run away from him, to receive him back, his name was Onesimus, no longer as a slave, but as a dear brother. Onesimus became a Christian, apparently, through Paul's ministry. And Paul appeals to Philemon to receive Onesimus as he would receive Paul himself. In in other words, Paul asks Philemon to dissolve the slave-master relationship and replace it with a brother-brother relationship. But you know, even more significantly, the gospel places all humanity on the same societal level. All humanity. How so? Galatians 3.28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. That's radical. That is radically revolutionary. 2,000 years ago, it was radical. It's still radical today. Because to this very day, in India, at least to some extent, there is a caste system of inherited social status. I lived with an Indian in college who had, he was part of the priestly class. And it goes from that all the way down to the detestable untouchables. In 2023. But 2,000 years ago, Jesus abolished all such systems. And Paul clearly taught in 1 Corinthians 7, 21 to 23, were you a bondservant when you were called, that is, when you became a Christian? Do not be concerned about it, but if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself to the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freed man of the Lord. There's a a deeper kind of freedom than just physical freedom that Paul's talking about here. Likewise, he who was free, that is, you you weren't a physical slave when you were called as a Christian, now guess what? You're a slave to Christ. You're a bondservant of Christ. You weren't a slave, but guess what? Now you're a slave. Or in the former case, you were a slave, but now you're free in an incredibly profound way when you become a Christian. And this teaching bestowed immense dignity upon slaves. And and some historians claim that that up to 80% of Christians, the early Christians were Roman slaves. 80% of them. And it points to the fact that we Christians have been set free from really a far worse kind of slavery, the slavery to our sins. So here's the bottom line, several bottom lines. These are our practical takeaways. 
The Old Testament cannot be used to justify modern-day slavery. It just can't. It's like comparing apples to oranges. And the New Testament is unquestionably anti-slavery and pro-freedom. You need to understand that. But an even more important practical takeaway for each and every one of us is this. The gospel abolishes the assumptions and prejudices that make slavery possible. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 to 16 says, For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. That, my friends, is the gospel, pure and clear. That's the gospel. Jesus died for us to pay for all our sins. And whether you were a slave owner, cruel slave owner, or you had an abortion or any other sin, there's forgiveness. There's forgiveness. And that expression of selfless love by Christ is to be imitated. How? By us no longer living for ourselves, but for Christ. Slavery and abortion still exist to this day largely because people are living for themselves. Now follow me here on this, because if we keep reading in this passage, Paul gives us one last earth-shattering result of this gospel in the very next verse, and here it is. From now on, therefore, in light of all I just said, we regard no one according to the flesh. Boom. Mic drop. In other words, In view of the gospel that he just shared, we should not view any other human being from a visible, physical, or circumstantial frame of reference. What does that mean? It means we don't assign the value of anyone's life based on their race, gender, size or age, location, economic status, mental or physical abilities, or degree of self-sufficiency. So, according to the Apostle Paul and the verses we just read, both slavery and abortion are anti-gospel. They're anti-gospel. Do you see that? All right, in the time we have left, let's talk about abortion. According to pro-choice advocates, the value of an unborn baby is nullified based on what? Look at the list. It's nullified on the basis of a baby's size or age, their location in the womb, their economic status of the parents. It's often the basis for that decision. The baby's mental and physical abilities and degree of self-sufficiency, but everything but race and gender. Even those come into play because abortion in America was first championed by a woman named Margaret Sanger whose motive was to decrease the black population, race. 
And certainly in China, and probably in many other countries, most abortions have been due to the baby's gender. So we check all the boxes here. We obviously don't have time to do this topic justice, so all I'm going to do is try to counter the false assertion that the Bible doesn't say anything about it. So here we go. I just have four points and then we'll be done. First, many argue Jesus never said anything about abortion. Well, what follows from that? And the simple answer is nothing. This is an argument from silence. What did Jesus ever say about slavery or or child sacrifice or spousal abuse? Nothing that we know of. Should we take his silence on these issues to mean that they didn't matter to him? Of course not. So even if Jesus didn't say anything about abortion, nothing follows. His silence is not approval. Second, we know that Jesus had a very high view of Scripture. He referred to it as the Word of God that cannot be broken. So Jesus' words, or you know, if you have a red-letter Bible, they're the red-letter words, they're not more authoritative than the rest of Scripture written in black letters. Jesus gave us the red letters. The Holy Spirit gave us the black letters. And those black letters, they include Psalm 139.13. For you, God, formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. So in light of Jesus' affirmation of the Bible's authority, we know what he thought about the unborn. And that is that we exist as ourselves before we're born. In the New Testament, both Jesus and John the Baptist are described as themselves, as genuine, complete, valuable human beings while they're still in the womb. John the Baptist leaps for joy in his mother's womb when Mary comes, pregnant with Jesus. Third, Christians have always been against abortion. This isn't new. The Didache, which was written in the first century, says you shall not procure an abortion nor destroy a newborn child. So since the very beginning of Christianity, the church has openly condemned the killing of children, both born and unborn. All right? And fourth, and finally, and there's probably more, we have the sixth commandment, Exodus 20, 13, you shall not murder. Now, that word murder is exclusive to the immoral taking of another human life. It doesn't apply to any other life form. So the key issue becomes, what constitutes a human life? And secondly, does an unborn child meet those criteria? You know, when people say that life begins at conception, they're not just making a religious claim, they're making a scientific claim. For example, in the embryology textbook, The Developing Human by Keith Moore, he says, human development begins at fertilization. This highly specialized stem cell marked the beginning of each of us as a unique individual. That's from a science book, not a religious book. Even abortion advocate and Princeton professor Peter Singer agrees. He says, 
Whether a being is a member of a given species is something that can be determined scientifically by an examination of the nature of the chromosomes in the cells of living organisms. In this sense, there is no doubt that from the first moments of its existence, an embryo conceived from a human sperm and egg is a human being. Singer is an atheist, not a Christian. So according to embryology, it is a scientific fact that human life begins at conception. Therefore, abortion in any stage of development kills a human being. And science tells us there's four characteristics common to all preborn children. They're, one, they're complete. All the information that needs to be there is there. Just needs time to grow. They are unique. DNA proves that the preborn child is genetically distinct from the mother. Third, they're living. The laws of biology tell us that the preborn child is alive because it's growing, developing, undergoing metabolism, and responding to stimuli. And it's human. The scientific law of biogenesis states that living things reproduce after their own kind. That is, complete and unique living human beings. But you see, the debate isn't over. It's not over when life begins or even if that life is human. That's, that's all been settled. The debate is over when that life is valuable. And that is completely subjective. When is it valuable? And you know what? We've been here before. We've been here before. In 1858, the Virginia Supreme Court said, in the eyes of the law, the slave is not a person. 1881, American Law Review, an Indian is not a person with constitutional rights. <clears throat> 1928, Supreme Court of Canada, the meaning of, a qualified, of qualified persons does not include women. 1936, German Supreme Court, we refuse to recognize Jews as legal persons. 1997, Supreme Court of Canada, the law of Canada does not recognize the unborn child as a legal person. <clears throat> possessing rights. So, you see, this isn't just a religious issue. Not just a moral issue. This is a human rights issue. Quite simply, if you believe in human rights, then you must believe that human rights belong to all humans. <clears throat> and for human rights to have any meaning at all, those rights should begin when humans begin at fertilization. <clears throat> so I understand this issue is far, far more complex than this. My scope was merely to share what the Bible had to say about it. And again, if you have ever been involved in an abortion at any level, please know that there is abundant and complete forgiveness through the blood of Jesus Christ. And if you have any questions on that or would like to discuss it more, I'd love to do that. I'll be a, available up front here or after. You can email me or call me. <clears throat> all right, that, that's all we have time for this morning. But please understand that all life, all life is extremely precious to God. That's why Jesus taught that we should even love our enemies. Amen? All right, band, you guys can come on back up.
We're going to share communion now, the end of our service. If you'd like gluten-free, please just raise your hand now, and we will be sure and get that to you. These topics reminded me of some pretty key truths that we all hold dear. And here they are. Each and every one of us, before salvation, was a slave. We were all slaves to sin. We were slaves to our fallen nature. We were slaves even to the devil himself. That's what the Bible says. And there was nothing that we could do to free ourselves or pay the debt that we owed to God. But you know what? Jesus became our kinsman redeemer. And he paid an infinite price, not in money, but in the currency of his own lifeblood in order to buy us back from that slave market of sin. Likewise, each of us, because of our sin, deserved death. We deserve to be violently slaughtered by the wrath of a holy God. But Jesus was slaughtered in our place so that you and I could be adopted adopted by God himself and welcomed into his family as sons and daughters forever. Jesus voluntarily gave up all of his rights and became a slave for us, for us all, in order to make us free, free from all accusation and condemnation and judgment. And as we share the bread and the cup, that's what we remember, that cost that was paid on our behalf. So let me pray, and then uh, if you have the, the bread and the cup before you, we'll just take that together, okay? Well, Father, we are reminded of these truths this morning, how relevant and practical they really are to us today. Had you not stepped in and intervened on our behalf as our kinsman redeemer and bought us back, Lord, we would be in a peril beyond imagination. We, are, we would be just slaves forever and ever and ever. Thank you, Lord. We, can, we cannot pay you back, but we can take the cup of salvation and we can call on your name. And Lord, I pray if anyone here has not done that, that they would transfer their trust from themselves and what they can do to try to earn their way to heaven, earn their way to you. They would transfer that trust to Jesus alone and what he accomplished on the cross when he said, it is finished. It's finished. I've done it all. I've done all the work necessary to bring you sinners back in relationship to my Father who is holy. It's just a choice to transfer our trust. And we thank you. You made it so easy, so accessible. You did it all. Thank you, Lord, that it was literal, physical blood that was shed and your body that was broken, pierced for our transgressions, that bought us back, that brought us back to you. Because you loved us. You wanted us for your very own. You didn't despise our low position. You didn't despise the fact that we even hated you. 
and didn't have any desire for you. You pursued us with such, such a zeal. We thank you for that. And so we take the bread and the cup and we remember you. We proclaim your death. And not just that, but we proclaim it until you come because you are coming back. And we, we just long for that day. Thank you, Lord. You're coming back to claim us that we might be in your presence forever. We lift all this up through the merits of you, Lord Jesus, and what you did for us. Amen.